All right. Good morning, friends. Nice to see everybody. Glad, glad to be back with you. Uh, in case I haven't met you yet, my name's Ben Harris. I get the um, chance to serve as an elder here, and I'm, I'm thrilled to bring the word uh, to you today. But I get the chance to um, just to, to walk the next few steps in the book of Romans with you. Um, it, it's a challenging book. It's heavy, um, and it's I think the more when you when you sit in a passage in Romans for any length of time, um, you feel the weight and you feel changed by it. And I think that's Paul's intent in the writing. Um, so we're in Romans chapter two, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, we're going to go through verses one through eight this morning. Um, let me read them for us. And then we'll, we will pray to open. Therefore, you have no excuse, you foolish person. Every one of you who passes judgment for in that matter in which you judge someone else, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, you foolish person who passes judgment on those who practice such things and yet does them as well, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness, an unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will repay each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-serving and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he will give wrath and indignation. So let's pray as we start. Lord, thank you for, um, thank you for the truth we, we can trust fully that what we hear from Scripture in the words that you've revealed to us, um, that we see who you are, we see the truth of reality. Um, help our hearts to be soft, that we would not fracture under the weight of this, um, that you would come alongside us, love us, but um, yet show us the truth of where we need to change, where we need to repent. Um, and might that be known of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so getting into it, this series has been titled Rightly Related to Relate Rightly is sort of the the working title we've been going through here. Uh, And it has to do with Paul's letter to a church in Rome that couldn't, they couldn't rightly um, have a relationship, it would seem, with anybody, right? They would look outside the church and cast judgment on them. Inside the church, they would divide into groups of people who liked each other and didn't like each other. This was not a church that looked as though it was filled with people who looked like Jesus. Um, And so Paul brings this pastoral epistle to them and says, you have, you have to hear this and you have to change. Um, Now we've just walked through chapter one uh, at a a bit of length. Um, And it's important because Paul lets us know what reality is truly like, right? If you, if you want to know, you know, the the question has always gone, what is, what is humanity? What are people truly like? Paul lays it out for us. Uh, and it's fairly damning, and I use that word with every, <laughs> the fullness of the definition, right? It's something that that really can condemn, um, you know, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Um, and as I, as I read through this, and, and uh, I tried to, I oftentimes try to do this when I think of how to teach something, is how, um, you know, if Paul was, if Paul was standing where I'm standing, and I was sitting where you're sitting, and I'm hearing him say this, what would I be thinking? And if you read through chapter one, um, there's so much of it that we probably agree with. We, Paul would say, yes, humanity has suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And I would probably nod and say, amen, keep going, Paul. And people are full of malice and envy. I'm like, yeah, I know all those people too. And we'd, and we'd keep going, we'd keep going and keep going. And we'd get to the end of chapter one. Um, and then, and this is what is frightening. And then Paul turns the camera. He says, but you, and now the, and now the focus has shifted. Um, David's pointed out before that if you look at the pronouns in, that are used in the Greek language here, chapter one is very much full of they, them, those, right? So you can sit here and look outwards and think, okay, this applies to everybody out there. And I was, I always imagine that you can see more of route two from this building than you can, but I was imagining looking out the window and being like, mm-hmm, like see him drive by. Yep. Yep. Full of envy. Huh? It looks like, yeah, I, I, I see him there. Um, but that isn't the heart that Paul allows us to have here. Um, and it's, it's funny, the week when you're, when you're preparing to teach, um, all of a sudden these sermon illustrations just come up in your life and you're like, wow, that was kind of a neat addition. Um, and as we thought at the end of chapter one, 
Uh, if, you've, if you've been to my house, we have the end of chapter one here. Um, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, this is talking, Paul's addressing the world here. God gave them up to a depraved mind to do things that are not proper. People having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God and those that practice such things um, are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. We read that and think like, yes, it's, an, a, it's a very dark assessment of humanity. Um, and if you have little children, you see shades of this at points. And um, I was thinking of, uh, if you've been to our home, I think we have a feature in our house that I think is required for every home with little children in it. And it's, um, there's a set of hallways that connect in like a circle because what it, what it creates is like the, I call it like the Harris circuit. It's almost like a racetrack. And so, and so if they're, if they're ever bored and it's too cold outside, what they'll do is begin to race around it. And I I can sort of sit on the couch and I imagine I have a a bowl of popcorn and I'm just, I'm I'm hearing all the sound effects, all the the turns are going along and I'm replaying the announce, what an announcer would say in my mind, um, watching the kids race around. Um, now where this comes out is when, um, this is why you're not allowed to race a car on a public road is because there are obstacles in the road. And so we have a one-year-old who just plays that part so beautifully. Um, and several people this week, I guess I don't notice anymore. Several people this week, she had a bruise on her cheek and a few people said like, Oh, did she fall? And did she, what happened? And I was like, Oh, I got a story about what happened. It's, this occurred during the latest iteration of the Harris 500 um, in that the, you know, you can imagine the kids running around, you know, tires squealing, you know, kids flying off the corners into things. Um, you know, and you imagine one of the kids running along and this is how I picture them running all the time. They're, just, they're running along and they come alongside the little obstacle and they notice and all of a sudden now comes the, the elbow of malice and, and it goes into the, the head of the little one and down and down she goes. And then the, the face that comes with it is like, it's an, until the moment when a parent figures out what happens and we say, hey, and then all of a sudden the reaction changes and they go, <laughs> right? There's, and I just, and I was reading Romans one and I said, I've just seen like eight parts of this. I've seen malice, envy, deceit, spite. It's all here and it, it occurs. And so it's not hard to find that this is true. Um, now, what was, what was immediately convicting is when you read on, we'll see why this gets difficult, is that um, all of that is true in all of us as well. And, and that's the point that Paul is going to bring out this morning in chapter two. Um, I, hope, I hope one image you can keep in your mind this morning is, um, is that of clay. And I'm not a, I'm, I'm, if you get to know me, I am not an artistic person. Stick figures are as far as my art skills have ever gone and probably will ever go. Um, but, um, I had the, I had the smart idea once recently to bring home some clay for an activity for the kids to do. Uh, and boy, did it take a while to get it like pliable, right? You ever, if you've ever used like clay right out of the box, you, you clonk it down there. It's more like a rock than clay, but you have to work it, right? You, you have to compress it, go back and forth. Eventually it gets soft. Um, and I was thinking of clay and then wouldn't you know, God provided an even better example, uh, for the sermon this morning is, um, we made hamburgers last night at our house. Um, which I, I love a good burger. I like to make them with the fresh ground beef. Um, and I pull the ground beef out of the fridge and put it on the counter. Um, and I'm like, it's been in the fridge for a day or two. It must be defrosted by now. Um, pull it out. I put it in the bowl and I realized the middle of it is still ice hard. And I w- went to myself like, okay, I c- you can't cook this. What are you going to do? And so literally you had to spend a few minutes like turning it over and pressing it and shaping it just to get it to, the, to something where you could create a burger patty where you can make a good hamburger from it. And um, so I hope that that, when we read through this, you can picture um, that the Lord in a loving way is doing the same thing to the hearts of all of us. That um, when, he, when he confronts with conviction, that's his goal. It's not to destroy you, but he's, he's going to soften you so he can shape you into something that you need to be, that you're currently not. Um, that's the process we talk about as sanctification, right? And it hurts. If you've ever been pressed and prodded, you don't like it, right? I, I oftentimes will, um, it's, it's just the, maybe I hope it's just a season. Uh, one of our children will climb into bed in our home with us and 
prod me fairly consistently through the night. And, and I, re I immediately realized, like, I don't like this at all. Right? I'd, I'd, I'd rather you not be here. And, um, and so I'll pick her up and put her back into her bed. Um, but it's, we don't like it, but I, and I tried to think, like, Lord, is this for my good? And I'm like, okay, can I, can I use this moment to pray? It's 3 o'clock in the morning. I don't want to be awake right now. Um, but we need this prodding. That's what a loving father will do. Say, like, you are not who you're meant to be yet, and I will prod um, out of love. So as we get into it, right, we know in chapter one, minds, the minds of people are broken and unfit. Um, people themselves are filled with all manner of evil. That's what Paul is laying out here. Um, his argument so far, all humanity has been impacted by sin from the garden. None, none escape this. There's no one outside of this verdict. Um, church in Rome was trying to figure out how to relate to people. Right? How do you relate to each other? Inside the church, Jew and Greek, right? There were these big ethnic divisions that, that existed, as well as outside the church, right? How do you, you know, you could sit in the church and be like that pagan evil world out there. Paul, Paul says, you need to look at this differently. I don't think you get it yet. Um, now, what had happened is walls of division had formed. Now, can, can these, I know, heaven forbid, can these occur in our church today? Can you have walls of division? It's easy. It's actually probably one of the easiest things to do, um, now, what Paul's going to do, chapter 2 and onwards, is use the gospel to tear them down one at a time. He's going to be fairly surgical about it. Um, and in, in this morning, he's going to look at the hypocrisy that creates division between the church and the world outside. And that's the sad wall we don't want to fall into. Um, later on, um, when Pastor James comes up and teaches, he's going to be talking about groups within the church, right, that all fall in the same categories here in the Lord's eyes. Um, now you're working, what we're doing is working towards chapter three. Um, now we know Romans 3.23, probably many can quote that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which you can say, and that is true. Um, but I hope over these weeks, you find it worthwhile that we're going to build up to that fact um, step by step. We're going to build brick by brick by brick by brick so that when we are confronted with the truth that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we now, you know it in a, in a deeper way than you did before. Um, now, Romans 2 has some interesting characteristics, and um, there's a term in theology called a hapax legomena, which if, if anyone has said that before, kudos to you. I have a, I have a tip to give you. Um, now, what that is, is a, when you're looking at a text, any text, um, a word that shows up only one time in the text is called a hapax legomena. Um, now, that makes it a little tricky because you have to figure out what, what does this mean, right? It only shows up once. I don't have context within the text itself to figure out, okay, it's when the Lord is talking about this, what does he mean? Because he uses it other places. It's only used one place. Um, Romans 2 has quite a few of them. So there's, there's these phrases Paul uses that he only ever uses in Romans 2. The question is, why would, why would someone do that? Um, if you need to make something exceptionally vivid and clear, you use these, right? You use word pictures, you use something that is uniquely strong uh, in the language. Uh, it's also designed to elicit a reaction from the hearer, right? It's not just a presentation of truth. This is an invitation to respond. You, you know, if you don't feel the need to sort of like, hey, wait a minute, then you maybe haven't been listening clearly enough, right? This is, Paul's trying to be very clear uh, in Romans chapter two here. Give an example, right? You could say a truth like people are sinful. You could say that. We hear it. We'd say, yeah, I agree with that. I think that's true. Um, that may not elicit a much of much of an emotional response. Maybe you hear it too frequently, right? It's a it's a truth, but you don't really doesn't impact you in one way that is unique. Um, contrast that with this: that you actually can pull this directly out of the passage, that people selfishly and greedily hoard the wrath of God. So that's a that's a different way to say a very similar thing, um, that's designed to pull something a little more from from you. This is a stronger. Um, version of the same phrase. And it's said actually clearly in this passage, we're going to see this, that this is actually what Paul says. Um, you probably have a harder time, rightly so, sort of just moving past this. You're like, wait a minute. Is that really true of people? In God's eyes, it is. Um, now the truth, I mean, we're going to get into our text for the morning. Um, we should have no expectation that we would be any better than anyone described in chapter one, apart from the work of God. 
right? You, you look at, we look at chapter one and say, yeah, that sounds awful. That's us aside from what Christ has done. Um, and he confronts them very, very directly at the beginning. Therefore, you, now he's talking, to, he's talking to people in the church, you have no excuse. You foolish person. The Greek there is literally, oh man. Right, Louis? You have no excuse, oh man. That includes all of you. Every one of you who passes judgment. For in that matter in which you judge someone else, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Um, that word no excuse is a, is a Greek word that you, we come across fairly frequently. Um, Apologetos is the, is the word. It actually means just a reasonable defense. So someone who spends their life learning how to defend a point doesn't even have to be a religious point. You can have an apologist of a, of a technology opinion, um, but an apologist is a defender. Um, so what Paul is saying is that when you, when you see the truth here, you will have no reasoned defense when God brings about the truth of his judgment. Um, you cannot rationally separate out there as sinners and us in here as somehow different on our own. That's a wall we create by ourselves. God does not do that. Um, there will come a time when people who think themselves above the judgment of God for any reason will be shown the full truth. And that's sort of the sobering moment in this passage is that the, some of the strongest words Jesus had for people in the New Testament were dealing with this very thing. People who, who were easily able to cast judgment or make a, make a verdict about something while ignoring the sin in their own lives, right? Those, those are, those are the religious hypocrites, right? And so we want to desperately avoid uh, that reality for us. Enter Jesus. And, and Jesus spoke about this at length. Um, you know, what are, what are we responsible for in terms of sin in our lives? Um, for Matthew chapter five, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you can, uh, the, the, the breadth and the size of Jesus's sermon um, baffles me to this day, right? I can, I can sit up here and, and give truth for a while, but Jesus, you can read through the Sermon on the Mount in about 25 minutes. And that was a set of words that people have talked about and learned from for thousands of years now. That's a stunning achievement. Um, so we just get a piece of it here. Chapter five, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Um, thing to note here, Jesus does it. Paul does the same thing. Um, he just doesn't highlight the sinful outward action. He says, yeah, is it wrong to commit murder? Absolutely it is. He's like, but it goes, it goes beyond that. Are you angry? Are you wrathful to someone? You've done the same thing in God's eyes. There is no, you know, well, I didn't physically murder someone. I'm just, I'm angry at them all the time. Those are the same thing, right? We, we've, there's, there's no separation here that we can use to self-justify um, that God lays out. Now those, um, you, could do, you could do a sermon on the, the, um, the language Jesus is using here, sort of working its way up, assaulting someone's image, you know, being angry with someone, calling them a good for nothing or calling them a fool are deeper and deeper circles of who they are, right? So when you, when you begin to hold those opinions and say those things, you're not only, it's the equivalent of murder. You wish that they had been murdered as long as you didn't have to do it, right? There's a, um, there's a strict verdict here. Um, and that last word fool there is the Greek word moros. <laughs> That's the word we get uh, in English. The word moron comes from that. Um, so I don't know if that's part of your vernacular. It's been um, using that word for people. It, I'm sure in the past it was part of mine, and, but this made me think really carefully about like, maybe that's something that has to be deleted from my dictionary, that word moron, um, because of this. Now, Jesus is highlighting um, a tendency, maybe you can recognize it in yourself, that we'll have one view of people while conveniently ignoring the truth about ourselves. 
right? Humans have, a, I would say, an infinite capacity for self-justification. We can, we can say, it's wrong what you're doing. You know, I do that, but a little version, and mine's okay, but yours is not, right? There's this self, we have this amazing ability to self-justify. Well, I deserve it. Did you hear what they said to me? I, I should be able to do this. It makes me feel good. Um, that's what you, Jesus condemns outright, and so does Paul. Um, that's not okay. You can think of how this might sound at points. Um, yeah, how does this sound in our lives? You know, this could even, it doesn't have to be murder. It doesn't have to be lust or anger or anything like that. It could be, I tried to think of like, how would I quote this? You know, someone might, you know, might complain about someone. This person spent all that time talking about themselves and never even asked about me, dot, dot, dot. And then in the next sentence, you might say to someone like, whoa, 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 let me tell you about me, right? Those are the same thing. You know, I can't believe that this person would, dot, dot, dot. And, well, no one's hurt by my little habit. I, you know, I just, I do it. No need to bring it up before the Lord, right? There's this, we, we have a, whatever language we use, the heart there is the same. Justice for you, mercy for me. Justice for you, mercy for me. <clears throat> and what I, what I did just as an experiment this week, um, I, went, I over, went over to ChatGPT and I asked it to write me examples of this. I said like, hey, can you write me a paragraph that is someone being hypocritically judgmental? And it actually didn't find it difficult at all. Right? <laughs> it, it all of a sudden, it, I just saw paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. And as I'm reading down a few of them, I'm like, I've heard that conversation before. Like, that's not just a computer. I've heard people say this. Right, so this is incredible. This is easy to fall into, and it's very humbling to read, even to realize, like, oh boy, I'm prone to this at times. What do we do? Um, now, what we are to do is call sin what it is, right? Jesus or Paul is not saying in Romans two, like, don't address sin for the truth, um, but be careful of that fatal snare of pride and hypocrisy. Right, that's the issue. You can call sin what it is, but um, right judgment is what's called for here. Now, what's implied um, is that in the future, someone, who, someone will think that they are in the right before God, but their sin will finally be shown in the judgment, right? That's the, that's the thing that should make us all pause for a moment and say, okay, Lord, is that me? Do I think I'm in the right, but I ignore something? Right? We have to address it. These are, um, the word picture came just to me last night that these are like weeds that grow in our heart. Anyone have weeds in their yard? I've, when we first moved into our house, we had a ton of weeds in our yard and it took me probably three or four days of, of weeding to like get the vast majority of them out of the yard. Um, but what happens with weeds? They come back, right? Weeds, weeds are weeds. They come back. So wouldn't you know, I didn't get them all in the next season of, you know, some came a whole lot less came, but they still, they kept coming. Right. And so every, every so often I have to go out there and say like, okay, you don't belong and you don't belong and you don't belong, pull them up and throw them away. Right? That's what is called for here. Is we need to, you know, not within not with deep introspection, but ask the Holy Spirit to show us, like, Lord, is there a weed in my heart? Does that exist in me? If you would show me, like, I'm ready to be a piece of clay that gets softened. Right? Please do that. That's what that's what we need. Um, now, if you if you if you know me, one of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Job. And um, it's profound. It was one of the earliest texts that we know were written in the scriptures. Um, we get a dim reflection of this reality in Job. Um, going right to the end. So the, the 30 second walk up to chapter 38 in Job is that uh, Job was a man who was known for being righteous, right? He respected, he feared the Lord. He had faith. He sacrificed and prayed for his children. Um, but then he experienced this immense suffering, a season of incredible loss. Um, his friends tried to come comfort him. Um, my favorite line from Job is miserable counselors are you, right? They didn't do a very good job, right? Have you ever experienced that? Like you are hurting, someone comes to counsel and you're like, that was not helpful that, you know, I, I wish you just hadn't come. Um, that was probably Job's feeling. Um, so Job does well for a long time, but eventually he cracks and he accuses the Lord of injustice. He says like, you've, you have done wrong God. And wouldn't you know, God responds and shows up in a whirlwind um, and in chapter 38, we get the beginning of his response here. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind and said, who is this? He knows who it is, but who is this who darkens the divine plan by words without knowledge? Now tighten the belt in your waist. The, the original Hebrew is gird your loins. Like, like, 
pull your pants up, let's go, um, like a man, and I shall ask and you shall inform me. The problem is, um, now Job, the truth about Job has been exposed. Job has, doesn't have a response. Like the, Job can say nothing to the questions that God is asking. He's without defense. Literally that word from, from um, Romans 2. Job, um, and he says in chapter 40, then the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Would you want to be in that interrogation? I, I wouldn't. Um, let him who rebukes God give an answer. Um, then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am insignificant. I am small. What can I say in response to you? I put my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and will not reply or twice and I will add nothing more. That's the right response. Um, so Job is literally without defense here. Um, this goes on a little further. <laughs> God isn't done with him after this one, this one time interchange. He's got another round, two more chapters, um, ask some questions that no human could answer. Where were you when I did this? Where, what do you know about these things? Finally, Job realizes and gets to the truth, um, which I think is instructive for us in chapter 42. In verse one, he says, um, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. So we should start there. And that no plan is impossible for you. Who, and he's quoting the Lord here. Who is this who conceals advice without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, th which I did not know. Have you ever done that? You've said something and realized like, I sounded foolish. I should not have said that. Um, that's Job and he's in God's presence as he's saying it. Um, quotes him again, please listen and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. He's telling Job like, if you're so smart, you tell me what to do. Um, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, and, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent, sitting on dust and ashes. That is, um, that is one of the better biblical descriptions of a humble, repentant heart that I think I can find with at, the, at the end of the book of Job. That the, the right response to seeing the Lord is, you know, <laughs> when God shows up in scriptures, in the scriptures, the the response of most people is not like, yeah, here's the Lord. It's usually I'm about to die, right? Like this, you see him in his glory and his holiness and realize that I am out of place. This isn't right. Um, and when, when Job sees the Lord, uh, which is in a whirlwind, he didn't see God in his form. Uh, the truth of who he is becomes really clear. Um, Job, <laughs> Job desires to retract here. Literally the, the Hebrew means like he abhor, he hates himself. Um, like I, I wish I could like fold myself up and put myself away. Um, and he repents. He's, he's grieved at what he has said. Um, now Paul is doing a very similar thing in Romans two. He's pointing out that you, you have misunderstood much of the gospel, much of who Jesus is. And I'll tell you how I know that about you. So it gives him a number of tests. We're going to walk, walk through, um, in verse two, though, he highlights a truth. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. It's easy to agree with that. So like, should God judge sin? Yes. We, we want that. We depend on that. We depend on God's character for that. Um, those are the sins referred to in chapter one. Um, but at this moment, here's where we have to be careful. The wall can go up. Yeah, God, you should judge sin, but just not my sin, right? You should judge, you should judge all the sins, but just like... Could you, could the microscope like skip over me? Could I, you know, could I get out of line and get in the fast lane? Is there, is there a way I can avoid this? Um, we look out the window. I was thinking of it here. Uh, you read the news, you read social media. Uh, it's so easy to think. And, and it, um, we're almost, I was thinking this morning, we're almost baited into doing this of like those lost people out there, right? There's this, there's this distinction that gets created, um, and what happens if we're, if we're honest, I have to be honest with my own heart, the judgment flows from the heart. And sometimes it comes out of our lips, right? That's the, you know, we begin to say it. We, it's not just the heart that it, it exists in the heart. It now comes up and out, right? And we really, what's in our heart is exposed, right? Now, I, I hope that one of the, one of the things I, um, I do as a, in, in a, the profession I have, and then when I'm up here teaching is sort of look around and read body language and if, everyone's, if anyone's sleeping and all these things. Um, and I think that if, we, if we're honestly listening, the, our body language at this point should be like, I feel kind of small and I wish I could fold myself up, um, like Joe probably felt. And I think that's right. 
for us, to be there for a moment. Um, but by the end, fear not, we're going to remind ourselves of the hope that we have, right? There's a, there's a greatly more powerful hope that provides um, rescue and escape from this, which is what we need. So we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. God is right to judge and he will judge fully and completely. This happens other places in scripture. But this is, but Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 to 36 is one of the longer discourses that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And these are the religious leaders who were like the personification of this hypocrisy that we see. And it's easy to say like, oh, the bad Pharisees over there. But like, look back, like our hearts have those Pharisaical tendencies, right? This religious observance tradition, we're up, well, I'm a few ladder rungs higher than you. Um, we all have this. And here were Jesus's words for these Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites six times in the passage and uses the term woe, W-O-E, pretty frequently. Um, it's primarily an expression of grief. Like I'm saddened at, at this behavior and God is right to judge this. Um, here's what they do. You don't want to be known for these, for this kind of thing. Um, the Pharisees, this, Jesus tells them, this is what they do. They shut up the kingdom of God and do not enter. And they keep others out, right? Not only did they not go in themselves, it's like you try and keep others away, right? That should be a horrifying thought. Like someone says, I want to know Jesus and, and by our actions and our hearts, we sort of keep them from the truth. Heaven forbid we ever do that, right? That's a, that's a horrifying reality. The Pharisees travel far to make disciples, right? They go and, and find acolytes. Um, and Jesus says, they're, you know, the disciples you make, they're even worse than you, right? You create even more evil by what you're doing. They provide religious ladders, right? You know, do more, get to level two, get to level six. Um, but they understand nothing about who this God is. They tithe the smallest detail, right? They, uh, I think old Jewish tradition says they the Pharisees actually tithed out of their spice rack. They would open up the dill, the cumin, the mint, and they'd give a tenth of it as part of the tithe. Um, but they remain in their hearts unjust, unmerciful, and unfaithful. Right? And God in the, old, in the Old Testament is very clear. He's like, do the greater things. Be just, merciful, and faithful. He's like, that's what you're, that's what you're called to. The Pharisees observe outward cleanliness. Right? They show up in their Sunday best. Right? They, in their, they're well-dressed, they're well-respected, they have every, every hair is in place, um, but inward is a different reality. Their hearts are unclean. Um, they appear beautifully, but death is flowing from the inside. Um, now, I don't know, you know, we look at the Pharisees and say, yeah, that sounds bad. Um, and I don't mean to hammer down, you know, I'm not directing this at any individual person. This is just the truth that's like, this is that spotlight that's going to find the weed in you, and we need it, right? We need this medicine if we're to be soft and for God to use us fully. Um, and the last phrase he gives them is that um, he highlights their belief that the, the modern Pharisees would look back at their forefathers, the ones who killed the prophets and say like, listen, we've progressed since then. Like I would never do what my great, 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 great grandfather did. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't do that. And Jesus says, you have no reason to expect that you're any different. And, he, and you know how he knows that? Because not too much longer later, they killed him. Right? So that, that same murderous heart exists in them. Um, the root of all this played a part in the death of Jesus. Um, and he calls them out clearly. In verse 3, Paul, Paul continues the thought. It's the, these eight verses are not a tremendously complex thought, but um, I want to sit in it with you for our good. That's, I think, the goal this morning. Um, and Paul asks a question here, but do you suppose this, you foolish person who passes judgment on those who practice such things and yet does them as well, and I read that fast for a reason, that you will escape the judgment of God? Because if you, if you think about this verse for a moment, um, there's two parts of it. There's the question part, and then you'll notice I took out the, the center section. The question is, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? This is the question he asked, but the question, the um, the middle part is the recipient of that. So here's the question Paul asks, um, you know, is God not going to judge you for some reason? And the recipient is, is you foolish person who passes judgment um, about those who practice such things yet does them as well. You hypocrite. You, you know, he's, he's highlighting the same, the same idea. Now, if we just read it through, um, clearly it's, it, would be, it might be easy to miss the phrasing, but that's what, the way Paul has built this. 
excuse me, you might have a response. Um, you know, I don't know how, to what strength you have this response. Well, I don't think that that's me. Like I've never murdered anybody. I've never, you know, struck with malice. I've never raised my fist in anger. Um, the next thought is, is probably going to be even more sobering. Verse four, and here's where it gets weighty. Um, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? I was really glad when we sang that last worship song, because I'm like, that's exactly it, right? That the more you think about what it cost for Christ to redeem you, the kindness, the grace, the mercy, the fullness of God's goodness in redemption, um, that should leave us no way, no place other than to go to our knees in repentance. That's it. That's the only thing we can give and do rightly. Um, now there's a, this um, kind of like we, I mentioned before, there's these hapax legomena ideas, these one-off appearances of these words. Um, and they usually in this passage, um, our English translation is not strong enough for what the Greek is actually saying. Um, the word think lightly is the Greek kataphrones, uh, which actually means to, to despise, to think against. It's not only like not considering, I'm actually actively opposed to understanding the fullness of this, right? Do you, do you hate God for what he's done? It's like, well, no, I don't think so. It's like, well, how often do you go to repentance when you think about it? But that's the test that you, you know, are we, do we find ourselves there desiring that God would change our minds to glorify him more fully? Um, we would gladly confess and repent of our sins. Like that's the norm of our life. If it's not the norm of your life, you want to, I would just say, honestly, consider where, how does this speak to you? Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness? Do you know what it costs to redeem you? It was a great cost. Um, it cost to redeem me. <laughs> it cost the, the death of his son. Um, and I, you know, you almost don't want to think about that. Like, I don't want to consider the cost because it's too much. But like, God's grace gave it freely. It was a huge cost, but he, out of love, he gave it. Like, so we have to be here. Uh, understanding that cost should stop us in our tracks. Um, I think back to a, a story about a man named Bill Bright. I don't know if anyone has ever heard of the name Bill Bright, um, but he founded Campus Crusade for Christ. He was a ministry leader uh, many years ago. He since has passed away. Um, but there was, this was a consistent story about his life um, that people would interview him um, and they would just talk about ministry and they would say, hey, Bill, like, can you just tell me what Jesus means to you? He was a big guy. Bill Bright was about 6'6". Six, six, you know, he's, a, he's, a, he's a pretty big built guy. His only response to that question would be to sit behind his large desk and he would weep. He would cry. He couldn't muster a response because I think he had rightly considered what it cost to redeem him. Right? And when he considered Jesus, it brought him to tears. Um, and it was not a one-off story that, that came, came across like this. Many people who talked to him knew this about him. Um, when we consider the God of scripture, um, who, if you walked into his presence in a, in a way that other than exactly what he said, you would die. That's the old, the old Testament picture of like, don't approach the Lord in an unworthy, in an unworthy way. Understand him fully. Um, you have to, it's a deadly mistake to not do so. <clears throat> and in the, I guess in the next minute, I'm going to, um, I was trying to think, what, what do I, what do I do with these words? And it's really like trying to put more words to the truth of the gospel so that, you know, we can, we can together consider how beautiful it actually is, right? That, that we would take this, internalize it, and end up ourselves at a point of repentance, that that would be our goal. So, so what I say next hopefully sounds just like a gospel presentation. That's exactly what it is. Um, that God in his own plan invites sinful people into his presence uh, who have been given a righteousness and moral perfection that they didn't earn right? That's, that's kind of the idea here is you're given something that wasn't yours. You could never do right to get. Um, and yet you're given this free gift and you get to go into the presence of God. Um, the cost was great. It was the perfect life of his own son. Um, you know, and being a father now having children like that hits a, that hits a different nerve as a father thinking like, wow, that's a, an immense love for people who hated me. Um, Everything about the death and resurrection of Jesus was unjust and it should make us cry out like, this is wrong. Stop the travesty. This man didn't do anything. One of the centurions said that. 
Um, it's obvious that those killing him were doing it out of jealousy. Um, no one stood up for Jesus, not even those who swore they would never leave him. He was truly alone, uh, abandoned by his earthly friends. And in his death, he was abandoned by his father as he, as he took the penalty for sin that he didn't earn. Um, sin carried the death sentence, but Jesus didn't have any sin, right? But he, he willingly out of love took it that he might redeem you and I. Like there's, um, and I was, I wrote here, there's just, there's a, there's many combinations of words you could use to express that. And, and here at New Life, we, um, we talk about an idea we call gospel fluency, right? It's so when you, when you talk about the good news in the Bible, um, what words can you use to describe that? And there's many ways you could construct the phrasing to say, this is the good news about Jesus. Um, but we want, we want to keep practicing. So we have many of those in our, in our minds and in our hearts to give. That's the, that's the key. And, and it's not just to give it to people, but it's to remind ourselves of this, right? That the cost to buy me was great. And that should lead me to be really thankful. I shouldn't think lightly of it. Um, have you ever, if you're, maybe if you're a parent, you've experienced this. Have you ever experienced like you, you give greatly for a child and the response is not exactly what you expected, right? That happens some, from time to time. Yeah, it's, we, we know this feeling and, and, the, and the emotion in us is like, do you know what it costs me to do this, right? Um, but that is the, that's sort of the reality that's being expressed here is when we, you know, God says like, through Christ, I bought you. You're like, okay, cool. Yeah, thanks. Right? It's like, no, you've not grasped it yet. You've not held the truth. Um, and like, and I want to acknowledge that it can be a scary reality. Like you, our, our pride says, I don't want to go that low that I would, that I'd have to confront the fact that I add nothing to my salvation. Right? I don't like that reality. I want to feel like I've done so I can, our hearts yearn to like add to it. But when we look at the full truth, like may we never think lightly of how rich that was. God is kind. He, he has restraint. <laughs> Do we sometimes struggle with having restraint? Or just, yeah, no, no, perfectly self-control all the time. Like the Lord has restraint. He would be right to pour out judgment and wrath at any time. Um, but he's patient, right? And he's not just patient. Like I like to think I'm a patient guy, but I, my patience wears thin after, you know, some things make it wear thin faster than others. But um, but the Lord has patience over generations, over centuries, over like his patience is not our patience. It's different. It's divine. Um, so don't think lightly of it, right? It's God is faithful to go with you in your heart. If you're, if you're willing to go to this depth and understand who you are and who he is. Um, and what it should lead us to is repentance. Um, and that's a Bible word that we probably, you know, probably doesn't, um, cross your vocabulary in normal conversation at work. Um, but the Greek word there is metanoia, is, which just literally means a change of mind. That I have a mind that leads me to do things and say things, and it needs to be different. Right? And maybe, maybe for, in some areas we love our minds, like I like how my mind works. And, um, but when confronted with who God is, we, it should lead us to say, like, I don't, like, I desire to know you more fully. Right? Would you change my mind? That's repentance. Um, properly understanding this grace should lead us to that. A desire to turn from what is false to what is purely good. Now, Paul's really clear here. I like Paul's clarity. Paul's a really smart guy. Um, and I'm, in, in some ways, part, part of me is like, I think I read him because he's right to the point. And I like to be right to the point. Um, but he, and Paul lays out a fork in the road here. There's two, there's two responses to this. In verse five, but because of your stubbornness, and we, so maybe sometimes we want to sit and say, like, I'm not stubborn, right? Um, an unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, right? I think it's important to remind ourselves that the, our default position as people, we all start here. It's not as though, like, you, you in, end up in stubbornness and unrepentance. That's actually the starting point. Um, the, wor the word storing up there um, is thesaurizes, which... Um, the root word of that is treasure, which is a weird, maybe a weird thing to think about that um, apart from Christ, our natural inclination, we don't just like, you know, accumulate it at a distance, some version of God's wrath. Um, people in this state actually treasure it. 
they're, they're, greedy, they're greedily hoarding it. So it's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to collect it and accumulate it for myself. The King James Version actually says, thou treasurest, thou treasurest the wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. Um, you know, and maybe we've not ever thought about this before, that apart from Christ, this is, you know, our behavior in being stubborn and unrepentant, this is what it does. We're actually, we're, we're willfully and um, seeking to store these things up, um, which I thought about it and I said, does that make any sense? Is that, is that rational? Only if you don't think that God's going to judge you, right? If you think you'll avoid judgment somehow, like, go ahead, you can store this up. There's no consequence coming. But Paul's being really clear, like, that's false. There's a consequence coming, right? And, and you need you need a recompense for that. There has to be some other way um, to get out of this. The other fork in the road here, Paul, Paul leaves no room for this kind of thinking. And the next three verses talk about all of what God will do in response to the deeds of all people. Um, verse six, who will repay each person? Now, interesting question is like, what does each mean? Just means each, everybody, each person, according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-serving and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he will give wrath and indignation. Um, you get two people described here. And this is consistent through scripture. Um, scriptures do not divide people by race, gender, socio socioeconomic status, or any other characteristic. They are either in Christ or in Adam. That's it. There's the two distinctions that we get here. Um, talking about the first one. Perseverance in doing good to seek glory. Um, we have to carefully define this because um, what I want to make clear right at the beginning is this is not an invitation to work for your salvation. We'll talk about why. Um, the Greek phrase here is ergo agathou, which just means good, good efforts, good works, good um, phrasing. Agathou is very general. It's, there's a number of words for good in the scriptures. Agathou is the biggest one. Um, and it's defined as something that is good by its very nature, right? So this, so this kind of good is what proceeds from God. That's, that's this good standard, right? Like you can have a, like I had a good hamburger last night. That's a different, this is a different good than that, right? I had a, you know, just it tasted good. This is something much larger and, uh, and more perfect. Um, and I, I tried to phrase it. I was like, if you're going to do something good, right? There are good things that we do. Um, if we do them with wrong motives, it's no longer this description of good, we are, our hearts have stained what we've done, right? You can't have something that meets this definition of agathau um, if your heart is not right, right? You've actually, you've sort of ruined it. You ever had someone do like, do something good, um, sort of good for you, but you know that there's a manipulative note behind it, right? There's a, you're like, I'm, just, I'm not sure I want to accept this because I kind of know them, right? There can be this, like, we know people's hearts. Um, and that's this idea here that you, um, something like that is not what's being described. You can't do this. So how do you accomplish something like this? How do you do good works that Paul's describing? Um, you can't. This is not an achievable standard for you. Um, but there is one who did. Right? This, this has been done, um, and you need that. So I want to be clear from before, this is not an invitation to work for your salvation. Right? The, the bar that Paul is setting here is way too high. So it's like, do good works. It's, it, it maybe is more, um, more explicitly defined as like, do divinely godlike things, right? Now, now go ahead and try. <laughs> it's, like, it's, not a, it's not an achievable thing for us. Um, and the next chapter in Romans, Paul makes it really clear. Um, there is none who does good. There's no, not even one, right? So don't, yeah, again, I want to warn us against that as our, our um, this is not to be confused for an invitation to like, May, do enough good that God would have to respond in some favorable way. That's not who God is. Um, what we need is the credit of one who did these good works without the stain of sin on his heart. Right? And there's only one man who met that standard. And we know who that is. That was Jesus himself. The other fork in the road here. 
Um, but to those who are self-serving and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he, give, he will give wrath and indignation. Self-serving, this is a, this is a hapaxal gamina. This is a word that shows up only once. Um, so you had to, I was like, okay, what does this mean? Had to do a bit deeper digging to find any reference to it. Um, it's used in ancient Greek, and what it describes is a mercenary. Someone who, who will meet their own ends regardless of the consequences. Someone who's paid to do a job and will accomplish it no matter the cost. Right? This is, you, you think about a, uh, um, it was, it was, maybe I'll, this might be a reference that would go over some people said. Anyone see the, it was from the ninth, late 1990s, a movie called The Rock action movie. So yeah, if you're an Ed Harris fan, yeah. So some of us have seen this movie and it had a group of mercenaries in it who were soldiers and they were big and tough and doing this, this cool um, work in the action movie. When things started to go wrong, their mercenary colors came out and said, and they turned on each other and said, I need to get paid. Like all loyalty, every good thing about brother, like comrades in arms, all of that fell by the wayside because they were mercenaries. Um, and I think that's a bit of the picture that Paul's talking about. Is like the other side of people is that they, they at their core are self-serving. They like, I don't really care what happens to anybody else. I will get my end. I will, I will end up where I want to be. Um, and my wife reminded me of a conversation that we, um, that she had with, um, our son recently, our eight year old. Um, and he, he asked what hell was like. Um, which is an interesting question from coming from eight-year-olds. How do you describe this in an eight-year-old? And I think my wife did a, did a um, very precise and excellent job of talking about um, the f- separation from God and then including there that the um, if you let human nature be now be unconstrained, right? like what is deep within people should scare us if we understand people, if we understand ourselves. Now imagine that unconstrained, Right? Everybody seeking their own, only their own good. Everybody seeking, um, like, you would be afraid to leave your house in that case. Rightly so. Right? You'd be terrified of this, um, this reality that you now live in. But there's, you know, God has supplied this common grace in his patience and his restraint um, to not let that run amok. That's what separation from him looks like. Right? It, should, it should make us terrified. Um, so we avoid this. But this is the word he uses to describe these people who um, who possess this pride and hypocrisy, who think, who think lightly on God's sacrifice for them. Um, at the core, this is who they are. And I pray that that's not us. I really do. Um, they do not obey. Apethousi um, is the Greek word. Uh, it means refusing to be persuaded. Right? They've, they've been presented information, but says like, I will not believe that. Like, I hear what you're saying. I will not be changed, right? Refusing conformity. Here's the standard, like, this is the goodness of God. Say, I want nothing to do with it. It's a refusal to be persuaded. They do not obey the truth. They know, you know, even presented at an intellectual level of who God is, what it costs to, to redeem you and say like, no, thank you. I'm out. That's this, this picture. Um, now, not only do they not obey the truth, they, do, they positively obey something else. They obey unrighteousness. Same root word here, um, pethomenois. Um, they're being persuaded of that which is not literally non-justice. Right? Unrighteousness there is adikeo. Um, it's literally calling what, something that is wrong right and something that is right wrong. They've reversed truth. Um, they, and they obey it. Right? They're persuaded by it that this is good. And last few, few words here on, the, on this particular verse. Um, you know, the, the, the temptation, this is the, the problem we're going to run into, is to say like, yes, God is right to, like, he's right to judge this. This is like in his goodness. How could he not? Um, we have to approach this with hearts that are right. Um, now, the word, the word for God's wrath here um, is the Greek word orge, which... Um, when you think of wrath, you think of uh, like if you've seen a, uh, a movie depiction of wrath of some kind, right? It, it probably looks a bit chaotic. It looks, you know, highly, 
you know, there's a ton of emotion flowing. It's just this, you know, like, uh oh, I don't want to experience their wrath because of this thing. And it's very chaotic. Um, the description in the scriptures is not like that. So God's wrath is not chaotic, um, but it's perfect and efficient. He does exactly what he needs to do to judge fully and righteously and no more. Um, his indignation, right, that end, the end of the verse there, uh, is a Greek word thumos, just means anger. Uh, and that's based on his character. Right? Is it right to be angry at sin? It is. Right? Sin, should, sin should grieve us. It should make us angry that um, the truth is being neglected. Um, but the, the right realization beyond that is that I'm, I'm not the one to execute judgment or vengeance or justice. Right? You probably think of both in Deuteronomy and in the book of Hebrews, um, when, they, when the Lord reminds people, like, like to, to whom does vengeance belong? Right? It's not to me, but it's, it's to him. It says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Like, nothing is going to be missed by the Lord. Right? He not only sees actions, thoughts, he sees the condition of the heart. And that's what he will judge fully. Um, so it's not, the, the picture here is not chaotic. Um, and he's the only, God is the only one who can do both of these things perfectly. Can you imagine a, a you know, a passion, the passion for righteousness and holiness driving justice and judgment, right? That's a difficult combination to maintain rightly. Um, but God is the one who can do that, right? And that's when we talk about his judgment. That's what will be seen. Now, the quick summary, again, this is not a, um, not a tremendously long passage. I hope very clear, um, that the world is marred by sin. We know that in chapter one, right? We can look outside and see it. We're like, yes, I agree. Um, the people in the body of Christ are not exempt. Though in Christ, it should make clear, if you're in Christ, you, you are freed from its power, right? You're no longer enslaved to it. Um, that's important to remember. Um, but we have this hazardous tendency um, to judge or evaluate others while we overlook things in ourselves, Right, say like they shouldn't do that, but I can. But I can do that, right? And I don't know how this sounds in your mind. Maybe you can think of a time where this has been true of you. Um, there, we have hope. If that is true of you, like you re- you read the um, the dark assessment of that reality. If this is true, um, you have a promise through Christ to give you repentance and a change of mind. If you realize like some, some part of this makes sense to me and I don't want it to be my reality, right? There's, a, there's power here to save you. There's power to change your mind. Um, when you ask the Lord for repentance, Lord, might I see you more fully? Um, I, I wrote down somewhere of like, how does this sound in my head? And oftentimes it, um, I'll say something like, Lord, I do not ascribe to you the glory that I should. I think you're powerful and wonderful, but like, I feel like I still see that as small. I need to see it as really large, as infinitely large. And so would you help me? I know I'm limited and I'm just, I'm just, I'm insignificant like Job, but like change my mind. I need, I need to grow. I need to be different. Um, There's a, um, there's a synergy here when we talk about sanctification. And that's the word that sort of underlies all this is like, um, you know, hopefully when you, when you read chapter two, um, this at least the beginning part of it here, um, my hope is that your thought is like, I, d- I want to change. I want to grow. I want to be different. Uh, if it's not, we like, may it be that we want to change. Um, and our, our, our participation in this um, is, to, is to work to remove that self-justifying division and fixate on how perfect Christ was. Um, and I'll give you 30 seconds of it. Like, have you ever thought... Like, you probably know your own heart. You know your own mind. You know your own actions. Um, but can you imagine a, a life lived in such a way that there was, there was not only moral action perfection, there was moral heart and attitude perfection too, right? Fully submitted to a perfect and good God and his will. That's a stunning thing. That's something you look at and you're like, I feel distant from that. Like, that's, it's, some, it's something that should change us when we think about... Um, in the book of Hebrews, the author in, in the second chapter uses, again, very strong Greek language to point out, like, if you're going to make it in this life, right, if you're going to, if you're going to avoid the, the judgment that God is rightly going to pour out, you need to fixate on who Jesus is. And it's not just like, look occasionally, you need to be obsessively 
eyeing it, right? You think he will not disappoint you. You're never going to get to the end of the beauty of Christ. You're like, you'll keep seeing more and more and more. And the deeper you see where your sin goes, you're like, Jesus was nothing like, like he had no reason to redeem me, right? But he did in his grace. He did with generosity. Um, Like that is what, that is what we're called to here. Um, So I hope if, if nothing else this morning, we would, we would take Paul's truth internally and be like, I've done nothing that warrants salvation, but like there's this beautiful and glorious Jesus who did, and he gave it to me. Why did he give it to me? Just because that's who he is, right? It's not a, <laughs> you can't contribute to it. You can't add or take away anything from it, right? Here's this, this gift you didn't earn that you accepted by faith. That's it, right? The gospel's not, in a sense, not complex, but like it deepens every time we think about it. And like, that's what the call is this morning. Think about it. Um, so the question is, what are we to do? You know, there's a response here. Should be. We need the, we need the good works of another. Those ergo agathu, those, the, we need the, the stuff that is of divine nature. Um, we need them. That's what God requires, that that, that would be our moral record. Um, we can't do it, so we need another's credited to us. Um, and we find that in Christ, that first one. He had that record. Um, we need to repent of wrong judgment, right? If we have cast aspersions on someone that you realize now you're like, I don't think my heart was right. I, either because I wanted something from them or I was jealous or whatever the chapter one sin is that comes from your heart, right? If you, if you see that, there's this repentance that you have to enter into. To say like, Lord, um, it starts with confession, which is the Greek, the Greek word homologeo, just means saying the same thing. Of like, when you confess something, you're just saying, Lord, this is the truth. I, I have done wrong. You have pointed out why it's wrong. Uh, and I need you to change me. I need to be, I need to be different than I am. Um, we need to do that. And um, my wife is one of the better question askers that I've ever met. And I appreciate it. So often, and she was asking me this morning, she's like, what's the one thing you want people to take away from this morning? Uh, and I think it's this, that when you, when we think about Christ, we think about the accounts of his life, the, how it all led up to these four gospel accounts, and we have this moral perfection in this man um, who, for only the glory of his father, would obey to the point of death for us. Um, should lead us to repentance. Repentance should not be a, a thing that happens only when you've committed the grave sin, right? You've, you like, I don't have to worry about these little ones, but once I've done the big one, then I'll repent. Like, no, we repent of it all. Even the little ones, like, Lord, I know that that was wrong. Um, change me, please. Um, we need to judge rightly. God will not be mocked. <laughs> I remember, um, I don't know if anyone has w- watched the old Saturday Night Live TV show, um, I was never up late enough to watch it at, when it was on, but the um, watching clips and there was a, uh, so Judge Judy was this sort of TV judge who I think she's still alive, Judy Scheinlin. Um, but there was a, you know, she would be giving judgment and the Saturday Night Live actress would jump alongside and like help her judge something. There was this picture of these two judges all doing, essentially casting, casting down a judgment on something. Um, God does not need that of us, right? He is sufficient to do all the judging. He doesn't need us to stand next to him and be like, yeah, that's right. right. Um, nope. So don't do that. It's tempting to say like, yeah, don't do it. Right. That's because the fearful part is like your heart may not be pure in that. Um, God will not be mocked. And aside from Christ, there is no difference between a Christian and anybody else. Right. You look at chapter one, say how, how dark and lost. Without Christ, that's me. That's just the truth. Um, and it's all of us. Ask the Lord to change your mind, um, to humbly and with love invite people into the truth. Right? We present the truth out of love. Um, that's the goal. This should not, when we're talking about doing this rightly, it should never lead us to like hide ourselves in the church, right? To have a, a holy huddle, as Pastor David would say. It's like, that is not what's described here. Um, we need to be people who have been humbled and like clay softened enough that we're... Um, we go out and we're gentle with people. We, when we see sin, we call it for what it is, but readily acknowledge like, listen, man, I've been there. 
and I know the, I know the end of that road. Um, come, to where the, come to where the road is good and right. That's where you should be. Um, we need our minds to be remade to practice right judgment. We need new minds. Um, all judgment has been given to the Son. There is a judge, right? It's not me. Christ has been given that responsibility when he judges at the end. Um, Christians are make, are, we are to make the truth known with humble hearts and gentle but persistent invitation. Right? You ever meet someone who's a humble man and he is persistently loving and pursuing? What should our, um, our hearts yearning be for people who are broken and lost? Not, not to say, um, you know, like, oh, sorry, your sins, like those sins keep you like especially far from God. My sins made me a little far from God. Now I'm redeemed and I'm close, but your sins very much more distant. Um, no, the heart is that, you know, no sin has separated you fully. Like come by faith, come by faith. That's our call. So will you pray with me? Lord, I find, I find these words humbling. Um, I know my own heart is not pure at many points, um, but you've provided a bridge and a way that we would know you. Your kindness would lead us to repentance. Um, Lord, today would we not ignore um, the call to repentance. We would respond and we would trust you in the work that you're doing um, to change us, that we as a community would be marked by soft and gentle people who persistently draw to come to the truth. Um, and that, Jesus, you'd, we would look upon your beauty and glory and be transfixed the rest of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.